Today's episode of The Shift We Shay is recorded on Gadigal land. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to the latest episode of this podcast, The Shift with Shay. I'm Shay Candish, the host of this show and the General Secretary of the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. So listeners, today I'm joined by three special nurses. We've got Jess Kybert from Blacktown ED, Sam Gregory-Jones from Canoundra NPS, and Alicia Rogers from Nepean NICU. Uh, and they're joining us today to chat about the road to ratios. Uh, can I get you all just to start by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about what you do, what your specialty is, and why you love it? Uh, Jess, over to you. Hey there, so thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be part of this. Um, my name is Jess Kybert. I'm a EDRN at Blacktown. Um, I'm coming into, I think this is my fourth year there and I'm slowly working my way through to being, you know, specialising in ED and I love it. It's absolutely crazy and manic and chaotic, but that's also why we do it. So, you know, it's, it's great fun. Um, and yeah, it's just good fun. Awesome. Thanks. Sam, you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on this morning. So my name's Sam and I'm a registered nurse working out in a small rural facility in Canoundra. I've been a registered nurse for probably seven years now and I've had a little bit of different backgrounds with theatres and mental health. Um, currently, I'm a bit of a rural specialist. So being um, in a rural facility, we're just a small 10 bed facility with an emergency department. Um, we do everything. We have all walks of life come into our doors. Um, it's great, it's challenging. And yeah, we love to be what we're doing. And yeah, thanks for having me today. Thanks. And Alicia? Hi, I'm Alicia. I work out at Nepean Hospital. Um, I'm the branch secretary and a delegate out there. Um, I currently work in the NICU. I've been there for about seven years. I've been a nurse since 2007 so a long time now um I don't think NICU was ever a place where I envisaged myself being um I was actually pretty terrified <laughs> to be honest as a student midwife to have to rotate to NICU um but from the moment I set foot in the door I absolutely loved it um and couldn't ever envisage myself doing anything else um it's it's an amazing privilege to um to be able to support sick and preterm babies and um and send them home with their families where they belong um so yeah good to be with you all today awesome so all of you have been pretty active in the union's campaigning for ratios over the years uh in various different ways um tell me a bit about what your immediate thought was when we had a changing government this uh most recent election uh i'd be happy to jump in here if i can so um on the election day, I was out in back of Parramatta with one of our um, organisers handing out flyers. I wasn't able to be there for long, but I was able to sort of jump out there for a little bit. Um, you know, I took my daughter with me as well, which was great fun. And the first thing we did as soon as we arrived at the local public school was she ran up to the A-frame where there's a big picture of my face on it. And she's like, mom like how are you there and here at the same time and and it was it was actually quite interesting handing out flyers to people um and some of them would be like you know no I don't want to flyer and we'd be like 
oh, but this is for the nurses. And oh, okay, sure, G give it to me. Let me hear about it. And we even had one gentleman come up to us with his newly turned 18 year old daughter, first time voting. And he said, can you explain to me and my daughter why the nurses are involved in this campaign and why they're all out fighting so hard? What does this mean? What do we need to know? Mm. And it gave us an opportunity to educate someone who knew a little but not a lot mm. and then a first-time voter who had no idea and how a government could affect a healthcare system, which for brand-new voters would possibly not put two and two together and see how that correlation can work there. But it was a really good opportunity to chat with them. And then that evening, my husband and I went out for dinner and I was the rudest person on that table because I was sitting on my phone and our Western Sydney Bandits group were all chatting away, throwing up pictures of, you know, what the percentage and swings were for the different areas. And as we finished this lovely dinner, which I did not pay attention to at <laughs> all, I'm cheering at the top of my lungs going like, you know, Labor at the time, I think we hit the 47 seats or whatever it's referred to as and and I'm just like in the car going like we've done it we we did it we we've got ratios yes it's not completely what we wanted but we did it mm. when we didn't think we could and we, oh, I was so excited yeah and just while I've got you you touched on it a little bit you were on the a-frame so for yeah. people listening they can't see you you are the face of this most recent component of our campaign uh, you're the one that says is it vote like your life depends on it on all of the ads so yep. what was the experience like being the face of that that campaign and those ads look it was a it was a good fun different experience it wasn't long before I got the phone call asking if I was interested in it I had a uh, an old preceptor of mine say that when things come to you and opportunities come to you say yes. If it's not going to negatively affect you, say yes. You'll never see where it leads. You'll never know where it leads to. So I said yes and thought I'd do it, thinking it was just going to be a tiny little thing. And it ended up being a lot bigger than I realized. Um, a bit nervous and apprehensive, but it was a great experience. Um, not as much when you walk around and see your face everywhere on everything. <laughs> uh, it became a bit difficult to get away from, but I had friends messaging me constantly telling me that I was popping up in all areas of the state and you know they should have let me know I was coming down and I'm like <laughs> I don't even know where that place is like where am I now it was hilarious but um when the ad came out I hadn't actually seen it on tv at all myself I saw it on the internet and I showed the kids because they were very excited and my four-year-old who'd heard it on the radio was all of a sudden just walking around going mum uh mummy radios saves lives I'm like sorry what he's like radios saves lives I'm like are you saying ratios saves lives he's like yeah ratios saves lives every single educator at his daycare and every parent of all his friends now know because they he told them so many times that ratios saves lives oh, so I've got cute. I've got the next line of our uh, union members ready to go <laughs> to tell everybody. Yep. <laughs> Ratios saves lives. They were, they were all over it. They loved it. Awesome. Sam, Alicia, do you want to tell us what your thoughts were on election day? Yeah. So I think it was a sigh of relief, Shay. So when people were asking me going, what does this mean? And we looked in the log of claims and 
um, you know, I just explained what that would mean as a D community peer group hospital. Um, and when I said to them that this would mean two registered nurses on at all times and it would mean three people instead of two basically there was a sigh of relief so when I said to people well what this means for our hospital our small hospital is that instead of having one registered nurse and one EN that means we're going to have two and we're going to have three people three nurses that are qualified in the building at the same time that's unheard of Mm -hmm. um, and it's so exciting because we first thought oh my goodness I'll be able to give them that cup of tea and I'll be able to you know I can be in ED and somebody else can be on the ward like just the sigh of relief and the excitement oh you we might actually get to go to the toilet or have a dinner break that's mm -hmm. unheard of so it was just an amazing sigh of relief we all knew this is not going to be instant it's not going to be straight away but it's something it's a start it's something for us to look forward to and it's a bit of ammunition for us to keep fighting because we're just so fatigued and burnt out that really my members that don't we don't want to continue anymore so that was a bit of light in the tunnel for us to go okay we've done this by us fighting and we're so close so let's not give up now yeah great Alicia what were your thoughts I'd have to say that it's, I guess I felt a bit of an air of cautious optimism. Mm -hmm. um, obviously very excited that, um, you know, a conservative Liberal government um, is no more in New South Wales um, and we have an opportunity um, now to keep fighting for what we need but um, also very much balanced with the, um, the perspective that um, this is nowhere near close to what we need. Um, and that there's a long battle ahead um, to ensure that everybody in New South Wales can receive safe care from their nurse or midwife. Um, so excited on one hand, optimist, um, you know, cautiously optimistic on the other hand. Mm. And look, I think that's the reality, right? It's the reality for our members. Um, and so I'm going to take this opportunity to just really talk through what it kind of means from my perspective, because I kind of agree with all of you. Uh, having a changing government presents fantastic new opportunities and hope uh, and really meaningful change for a lot of people, but also for a lot of our members, um, we don't have a commitment to any improvements in the area yet. So we know that the incoming ALP government have committed to improvements in uh, emergency departments, ICUs, MPSs, converting all nursing hours per patient day wards um, and postnatal maternity. But there's a bunch of units like NICU, like community, like theatres, you know, so many specialties that we still don't have commitments for. So there's a lot of work yet to be done. And so I think, you know, for our union, it's going to be a really interesting couple of years ahead because we kind of have to navigate this space of um, celebrating the improvements and you're right Sam not everything's going to come immediately so how do we make all of that happen but also how do we keep all of our members engaged so that we keep fighting for all of the specialties so that we do get those improvements um, and so talking everyone through what it really means uh, I think is going to be really key because for us, we think it's the hope. It really is the hope for that reform that we need across the entire health service. So, um, Jess, I'm going to start with you. Can you talk me through um, what your current unit looks like now and what uh, having one, you know, one nurse to every three patients in treatment spaces, particularly in ED, because that's the difference in the claim. It's not about beds. It's about treatment spaces. So when we're putting, you know, 
routinely putting a patient in an examination room or, you know, when I was an ED nurse, we would put them in the room with the slit lamp, like, the, you know, the things that you do to find beds, right? All of those spaces are supposed to be staffed at one to three. So what would that mean for you and for your colleagues in your unit? Well, I mean, presently our department, last year, I'll, I'll go back to last year. Yeah. So last year we had... Um, over the course of about 12, 13 months, we had a mass exodus. I think it totaled about 46, 47 staff throughout the year um, resigned. Wow. Um, if, if they didn't resign, a couple of them were on mat leave and a couple of them reduced hours and, and then eventually left, um, be it for different opportunities that came up, um, lost the passion, burnt out, wanted to find a different career, get out of ED. Um, couldn't handle the stress of it anymore and it wasn't that they couldn't hack it it was the amount of stress and the workload put onto us that we were getting to a point where it's like is this actually worth it anymore yeah like my mental health and my safety and my health is so much more valuable and important than this job and we've seen that all across the state right nurses and midwives are opting out because the requirements are unreasonable and they've become more and more challenging and the working conditions have absolutely deteriorated. So I think your story is a common story and this kind of push for individual resilience is completely inappropriate when you're turning up to work and you can't even get a lunch break. Like it's, it's, you know, the total disconnect. Exactly. And, and whilst we are all very aware that it's not just us, like, you know, the, the state and the arguments do not revolve around our ED department. And we know it's statewide. For us, it was a big thing because not only was it that stress and pressure that we're all under and and coming through COVID as well, it was the mass exodus of all the staff Mm -hmm. and all of them being so senior as well. So we lost the senior staff for the, you know, the really critical areas, but we lost the senior staff to train all the juniors that were coming in. And we'd have instances where you'd have one nurse in our waiting room to manage 60 patients. And that was a normal thing. You, that's not possible at all to manage that with one. Um, So bringing it forward to now, we have filled a lot of these positions recently with a whole lot of new grads, which is great to see new um, nurses coming through and a lot of returning RN2s and some new hires as well, which is great. The only downside to this is these guys are very junior, which is not their fault, Mm. but we don't have the senior staff anymore to help assist them and to train them because they all left. So there's a lot of stress and a lot of um, pressure that gets put on these young nurses who have, you know, they've got eyes like deers and they're just looking out at this amazing world and then they get a patient load of five in ED, a critical care area, you could have three of these patients being really unwell and deteriorating and two that are, you know, maybe confused elderly who are climbing and their falls risks. And this brand new baby nurse is now going to figure out how to manage five patients. Yeah. Bring in ratios for us in ED whilst yes, it's not everything we want everywhere, but at least for our argument in ED, this means that someone who is learning how to recognize a deteriorating patient only has to focus on three of them, not five of them. Yeah. Um, it means that, you know, the experienced nurse who will get that heavier load of three critically unwell patients will only have to manage the three, not 
four or five. Um, a lot of my colleagues, whilst they're very excited and they're very, you know, hopeful and they're all like, this is great. They also turn around and go, but I'll believe it when I see it. Because I know that they promised it and I know that they've won and I know that they've come in, but until it actually happens and until it actually is done, and then in turn, they hire the staff to create that one to three, that's when I'll believe it. And yeah. it's really hard to turn that. I can see the light at the end of this really long dark tunnel, but it's probably like, you know, still however many yards away and I'll still probably not see it. It's really hard to turn that slightly positive but mostly negative thought process into a but this is a win we need mm -hmm. to still celebrate that this is our win mm -hmm. it could take two months it could take six it could take 12 who knows but the fact is it was a promise he's committed to well when I say him the ALP, ALP have committed to it it'll happen we just have to sort of hold them to it Mm. rather than go great thanks so much and we'll you know when it happens it happens and then we leave it like we hold them to it and it's going to come in it's going to make a huge difference for us but I'll be interested to see how it actually is rolled out mm. and how that will in turn help us when we're say staffing our waiting room I know that doesn't come into that incorporation of that one to three but it's still got to be factored in somehow so that all our staff from out the front aren't thrown out the back for your one to three leaving your one to the masses that turn up so <laughs> yeah so look it'll be interesting to see how it rolls out we're very excited but I'm still I want to see how it works first but it's still a, it's still a massive win yeah look and I think it's right to be a bit skeptical right it's well it's normal given we've been fighting for you know a decade or more mm -hmm. um and so the prospect of us having hope and being able to see the change like I think it's normal that people are pretty cautious about that um and I think you're right we are going to have to hold them to it you know the discussions we're having with government already now are about building an implementation team so that we can actually start talking about the detail how do we start to roll it out this is really big reform um, and when you look at us, you know, comparatively to Queensland and to Victoria, you know, we're a big health system and we're trying to do um, bigger reform in a much shorter amount of time than even those states did. So there's a lot of complexity that sits around this and we're doing it post-COVID with lots of vacancies like you've spoken about. So we've really got to get down to the detail and start building out those systems. So I think it's right that people have got some caution around it. Um, but I think it's right to be hopeful too. So I think it's exciting. Thanks, Jess. Um, Alicia, can you take us through, um, you know, obviously NICU is not part of the commitment. So take us through, you know, the impact of it not being part of the commitment and your thinking in relation to um, what needs to happen. Thanks, Jay. Um, look, in NICU, we're, we're caring for some of the most vulnerable patients in our hospitals. Um, we're talking sick babies, preterm babies. Some of these babies are less than 500 grams that we're looking after, tiny little sick babies, um, not just caring for the babies, but also trying to support parents and families through probably the most challenging time of their lives. Um, ratios would make an incredible difference um, in NICUs and special care nurseries across New South Wales. Um, if I could give the listeners a bit of an idea as to um, some of the challenges that we face in NICU at the moment, um, 
you know, yes, we're caring for the patients that we have in NICU, but there's also a responsibility for us um, to respond to neonatal emergencies across um, the campus. Um, we have resource nurses that are allocated um, to go and respond to those emergencies. Those nurses are the most highly skilled nurses that we have in our NICUs. They're the ones that are most often looking after the sickest babies that we already have in our nurseries, yet they're also wearing a pager and being asked to go and respond to a neonatal resuscitation in birth unit or theatre or postnatal ward or the emergency department. So they're being taken away from this already very sick baby to go and respond and provide care to another sick baby. Um, and there isn't necessarily somebody waiting there to, to pick up the slack um, and take over care of that sick baby that's already in our nursery. So things like access nurses in NICU um, in those sorts of situations would make an absolutely enormous difference um, to outcomes for our patients, um, safety for our patients and the workloads for our nurses. Um, you know, access nurses could also help with things like doing procedures in NICU. You know, we're doing things like putting in umbilical lines and peripheral central lines and things like that. These procedures can sometimes take hours. Mm. Um, and we've multiple got, people, I would imagine. That's multiple people, exactly right. And that nurse has also got another patient in the ICU that for those hours that she's scrubbed doing that procedure isn't able to provide care to that baby. Um, so the other nurses in the unit need to try and pick up that slack as well while they've also got their sick patients that they're caring for. So again, access nurses, absolutely critical. Um, you know, having one-to-one -one in ICU um, would be amazing for us. Um, look, the ideal is to look after a ventilated patient one-to-one, -one, but it's not always the case. It's not guaranteed. Um, we could be looking after a ventilated patient and a patient on CPAP or BiPAP um, in the intensive care unit. In our HDUs, um, we're often looking after babies one to four. Um, a ratio of one to two um, would make all the difference in that situation. Um, we shouldn't be having babies who are on high flow nasal cannula being nursed one to four. Yeah. Um, that would be nursed one to two. Um, our ratios in special care nursery, we're currently looking after one to four patients, having a ratio of one to three. Um, again, huge difference. Just having that one less patient would create so many extra moments for us to be able to support those infants and their families during a shift. Um, it would allow us to be able to provide more individualised neurodevelopmental care to our patients. Neurodevelopmental care is an area where we're, we're finding out more and more all the time um, about how to better support preterm and sick babies um, and protect their brains and provide an environment and provide care um, that is going to protect their brains and provide a good neurodevelopmental outcome. Um, but having ratios would be absolutely critical in being able to provide that individualised care, being able to provide family-centred care, um, you know, being able to provide more thorough education to our parents to help them to care for their babies while they're in our nursery, but then also to be able to learn how to care for their babies when they take them home. Um, it's absolutely critical that we get ratios in NICU. Um, yeah. It's baffling that um, NICU is not covered by the ACCCN standards, um, yet um, adult ICU and paediatric ICU are. Um, the only difference is the size of our patient. Um, 
where we're providing high level critical care in these nurseries. Um, I just, I don't know that the public, I don't know that some of our colleagues really understand what actually happens in a NICU. Um, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody said, oh, you know, you just cuddle babies. <laughs> we don't cuddle babies. Um, it would be nice if that's what we did. That's absolutely not what we do. What, what you see in an adult ICU or a paediatric ICU is absolutely replicated in a NICU and we are desperately calling out for ratios like our other intensive care counterparts are. Mm. And look, my observation is not, um, is that, you know, the commitments are not based on um, one specialty being in more need than the other, right? Like if you take a purely objective approach to um, sort of looking at this, the commitments that have been had have really been in the places where the members have been probably the most active and where have had the most media and built the most political pressure. And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn in that for our union, you know, when we've had emergency ICU nurses calling out about the issues, we've had the regional and remote inquiry, a lot of those um, circumstances have almost created the uh, environment for us to be able to deliver this outcome that we've achieved or the commitment that this government has committed to. So we have to think about how we create similar circumstances in other specialties uh, if there's not a willingness, I suppose, to um, lift up all of those specialties. And I don't want to make it sound like there's not. When you talk with the current government, they talk about reforming the entirety of the health system, but starting with these first five areas. Um, but, you know, the real, the real political pressure was um, delivered in a way where those specialties were the ones that I think um, were emphasised the most. And so I think there's some learning in that for us. Um, thanks, thanks, Alicia. Uh, so, Sam, you sort of touched on this, you know, having three nurses is going to be um, life-changing in Canoundra. What will it mean in detail for you, like day-to-day, and what will it mean for your community? You know, I'm, I'm always really struck by um, when regional kind of MPSs in particular, uh, when you talk to people in those, um, those sites, you know, they know their community so intimately. And so work and home and family and work, they're also kind of interconnected. So what will it mean for you and your peers? But what will it mean for your community, I guess, is what I want to understand. Yeah, so what the ratios promised to us as a Group D hospital is that we will have a minimum of three nurses on every shift and two of them must be a registered nurse. In the car extra nozzle, um, we have three in the morning. So you've got one registered nurse and two endorsed enrolled nurses. And the reason we have three is because we have an ambulatory care unit. Mm -hmm. So their hours are supposed to be separated and they're supposed to be in the ambulatory care, which doesn't happen. Um, so as of 4.30 in the afternoon, you've left with one registered nurse and one endorsed enrolled nurse. This is to cater for the ward. Yes, we have a 10-bed facility. We have 15, but we're staffed for 10. In saying that, if there's somebody in ED we need to admit, we admit them. So sometimes we might have 12 on the ward, we might have extra. We also might have 12 in uh, the emergency department. The other day I had 10 inpatients and I had 12 in ED. I was by myself. I rang every casual. There wasn't any casual. Mm -hmm. So I just had to make it work, which meant my poor enrolled nurse. So I was working in, in isolation with 
patients with chest pain, patients with bowel obstruction, no doctor on site because she was somewhere else. She was up on her way. Um, and my enrolled nurse was doing the ward by herself, which is, of course, difficult when you've got rehab patients who need two people. So she, they were having to wait just to go to the toilet until I could be, you know, ready to go. Their medications, I think it was 10.30 in the night duty, were having to give their six o'clock pills because we couldn't leave the, to get to the cupboard to give the medication. Um, those simple day-to-day -day jobs, they didn't get their supper. Once there's no security, like the little old dementia patients are in the ward on their own, I physically can't get to them. We've got, you know, you've got your falls mats and your alarms. But if I'm in literally a separate airlocked room, I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. I'm totally by myself and so is my colleague. Um, so having that third person would be just absolutely amazing. Having a registered nurse who is capable to just hand out the S8 medications to help take somebody to the toilet, those mm. simple things are not, you know, it would be a great opportunity for juniors and um, new grads to start coming along with us. There's amazing opportunities. Mm. And if you've got that support, you know, it's really great. Um, but at the moment, there's no way I would be encouraging people to do it because you're left on your own. But mm. if we had that third person, it would make the world of difference. Mm. Um, our patients and our community, they see it. They walk into the ED and they say, where's like, there's nowhere for me to sit. Where's your colleagues? I said, it's us. Where's the security? Where's the tea lady? There isn't one. Where's the manager? Well, I tried to ring them, but they've gone on holidays. Like, there's no, and then the buzzer system doesn't work. So we're walking around corridor to corridor because we can't see who's pressing the bell, hoping that, oh my goodness, it's not someone having a heart attack at the front door. We wouldn't know until we get to that buzzer. Um, so, and yeah, our community sees that every time they come in, they say, you've got to be joking. How can they be? How can it just be you two? But at the same time, they're always commending us. They're always saying, you've done so amazing and please don't make me a cup of tea. I'll be right. Like, And we do go above and beyond mm. um, and they see it and they do praise us and they do appreciate us. Um, and we do, you know, we are quite high standing in our community. But honestly, just having that pair of hands would be, would make us more comfortable. I go to work every day and especially on an evening and a night shift and I think oh goodness what's going to happen today am I going to make a mistake because I'm so busy and there's so many I cannot remember everything every demand every job every request I can't do everything I'm one person I'm not a robot I'm expected to be a robot at the moment I might not have eaten in six hours there's no self-care um, but at the end of the day it's that big fear that who's going to be, I'm going to be thrown under the bus. I'm the registered nurse. This is my responsibility and I signed up for this and that's actually not okay. So, yeah, yeah, having that would make a world of difference for us, I think. Yeah. It is a long way in the pipeline though and our biggest fear is that's a great promise but where are they going to come from? If we can't get a casual AI in at the moment, yeah, where where is this extra person going to come from? That's our biggest fear because we have no ideas where they're going to come from. But I hope that there is a system in play where we can find these new recruits.
Yeah. So again, I think this is part of the reality of what we're confronting, right? Um, for us, we really, you know, I truly believe that bringing hope back to the system is going to be really key because we need some circuit breaker. Well, the conditions are the way that they are. Why would anyone come back to the system? And why would the people that are here now keep coming back day in and day out? So I think the commitment is the first step to really helping nurses and midwives understand that there is hope and that we need the reform. Um, and hopefully we can keep the nurses and midwives we've got and then start growing that workforce for what we need. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting once we start to sit down with government and the Ministry of Health and really look at the data and understand exactly what every unit is going to need to be able to meet the um, commitments that the government's made and start to think about some timelines. And all of that's only going to be um, doable once we know exactly what we've got and what we need and then start to plan for that reform. And, you know, to be honest, it's going to take years. It's going to take us probably five, 10 years to reform our health system in the way that it needs. Um, and so how do we stage that starting as soon as possible? What can we do now? What do we do in six months? What do we do in 12 months? all of those things um, and how do we start to really train and uh, bring our graduates through a system that supports them so we're not losing them because we know that's just been so key and how do we keep a lot of those experienced nurses and midwives in the system so that they're providing the support because we can't keep seeing them go and I think COVID's really turned um, you know the the pressure up on a lot of uh, those experienced nurses and midwives to just opt out because um, it's all become, you know, pretty awful as well. So I think the hope, you know, if we can leave listeners with anything, I think hope is key here because we have an opportunity to really change. But all of those complexities in complexities do exist and it's gonna it's gonna be tough and we're gonna have to work it through bit by bit. Um, but you know, other states have done it, other states are doing it. There's no reason why we shouldn't as well. New South Wales should be the health system that um, you know we look to and that we're proud of and that it does all of the same things that other systems can do too. So I guess from here, what I'd love to understand from all of you is how do we keep people engaged in the work that's going to be needed to deliver this reform? You know, if the implementation is going to take time and if we, you know, keep um, keep needing people to, you know, come out and take actions and talk to their colleagues. How do we keep people invested in this, particularly for the areas that haven't had commitments yet, you know, because we need to get to a point where we see full reform across the health system. What are your thoughts about that? And I'll just throw it out to anyone. I think it's really challenging, Shay. It's a lot of my members are just they don't want to come to meetings anymore. They don't want to do anything. And we're we're just we're doing what we can we're really really trying we're talking about you know the wins that we have made mm. but then you're slapped with another 10 jobs from management and here's another five things that you've got to do and just this morning I was having conversations with colleagues and they said I'm not doing it that's not my job and I've had enough I'm not doing administration stuff I'm not doing security stuff I'm just not doing it because yeah. I'm going to lose my cool and I'm going to walk out of this place so I think 
I think we're going to fight back a little bit. I think that's going to be our way of doing it and actually say, no, I'm going to go and have my lunch break. And we've been saying for years that's what we're going to do. We haven't done it because Mm -hmm. it's our patient who she needs to go to the toilet. I'm just not going to have my break and take her to the toilet and, you know, do all of these 10,000 jobs that I need to do because we're passionate about it. Um, But I think now we're just knocking on the HSN door saying, sorry, I'm having a cup of tea. Come and take them to the toilet, please. Or I've got six in emergency. You you need to come and sit with me because I'm not a robot. So I think that's going to be our way. I think we've done with playing nice and I think Mm -hmm. we're needing to get a little bit more Mm -hmm. mean. But we're reaching out for help. We can't, we just can't do it anymore. I think that'll be our way. I think there's real um, sense in that, right? Like, no one's going to give us anything because we're polite. So there is some sense yeah, of being right. a bit bold. I like that. No Jeff. more Mr. Nice Guy. We're <laughs> done. Compassion fatigue, we're just, we're done. <laughs> Jess? I think there's um a lot of things that need to be done for our members to stay active. I know for our branch, it's a bit hard. We don't really get anybody turning up to our meetings, mm-hmm. whether it's because they can't make it, they can't be bothered, they don't see the point in it anymore. We did see a big decline in the uh, the three strike days. The first one, everyone was passionate. They were there. They were there for a great time. And then, it, you know, lessened and lessened. And then we'd have, a, you know, we did our own uh, branch sort of, actually we did our an ED walkout at the end of a night shift. Everyone was in their own time. We did a big thing to make a stand about how it wasn't safe and everything. And we had people come, but we were like bribing them the night of Mm -hmm. to get them to come there wasn't that passion in there Mm -hmm. but I think once people understand what these five key promises from the government are Mm. and and hearing Sam explain what that means for an an NPS like for so many people they don't know the challenges and and I had I knew that I had a very limited understanding just from conference but hearing her explain what a shift is like and what that means is it just, it makes me go, holy moly, I have nothing to complain about. Like I have a buddy next to me and it, it makes you go like, that's such a key factor and a key promise that needs to be achieved. And then when you hear about like, you know, with the NICU and they're not in the list and, and why not? Mm. And then Shay and how you explained how, you know, the, the promises and the key points that have been um, sort of included seem to be the ones that had the most um people speaking out and the most arguments and and that correlation and I'd never even put that sort of together and thought well actually yeah these are the areas that made the biggest fuss so it it comes back to us going to our members and saying you're coming to me as your delegate with your issues and thank you for telling me this but if we're going to do something I now need you to actually stand up and fight about it not just come to me because if making a scene about it the right channel is making a scene but if making a scene and making that argument is what gets it seen and heard by the others so that something can be done then simply sending the text sending the email chatting to me in the coffee line is not actually enough to get something done and and getting people to understand that they are the union they are the branch if you have an issue bring it to me I'll help you fight it and then let's do something it's, it's a multiple step thing that we have to do to fight to take these five key promises to 10, 15, the whole health system. This is a great start that we have. It, it is 
very exciting. Yes, we're, you know, cautious to see how it happened, but it's very exciting. But again, we need to remember it's just the start. It's a stepping stone. I'd rather have a start than nothing. But if you want to argue that your area isn't included, then let's fight it out and let's make a scene. Not sort of just, there's no point in saying something because nothing gets done anyway. Well, let's find out. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> uh, Alicia, any thoughts from you? Look, I guess I, I, I agree with some of the sentiments, but I also think um, we've got areas in our system that by nature of volume will be more visible, um, by nature of the kinds of work they do. So I think I don't think any of us would disagree that places like ED and ICU have certainly been more visible in the last few years um, amongst the COVID crisis. Um, I think those sorts of things come into play a bit as well. I don't think that there's necessarily a lack of will out there in the less visible um, specialties. Um, I think those people, I think there tends to be a little bit of a feeling of being left behind and being a little bit demoralised um, as well. Like I, I think it can be really hard when you, you've been doing things like writing to your MPs and you get no response and, you know, participating in strike actions and doing things like that. People feel they don't, they're not getting anywhere. They're not being heard. Um, so they're like, what's the point? I might as well just go to work and do my job and go home. Um, it's easier to just... Um, to do that for a lot of people um, and I speak not just of my own specialty but I'm I'm talking about specialties like midwifery like midwifery in New South Wales is in an absolute like it's beyond crisis um, beyond crisis um, our midwives in New South Wales are literally hanging on by fingernails at the moment um, we're hearing reports constantly of you know, one midwife on a shift in an antenatal ward or a postnatal ward. Yeah. Um, you know, midwives, women in New South Wales and their babies deserve the care of a midwife. Um, it's a human right to have the care of a midwife when you're pregnant, when you're labouring and birthing, when you've just had a baby, and it's not happening in New South Wales. I think we need to really wrap our arms around these people that haven't been heard um, mm. as much during our most recent campaign um, and bring them along. Um, we might not be the most visible um, for a multitude of reasons, but I think we really need to support those members and, and bring them along and empower them to, to take up arms again and really fight for this because it's critical. Um, we, we can't afford to lose any more nurses in NICU. We cannot afford to lose any more midwives in this state. Um, as I said, it's, it's gone beyond crisis point. Um, I, I think we really need to bear that in mind going mm. forward. Well, couldn't agree more. I think, you know, really being um, thoughtful about how we elevate the profile of a whole range of different specialties. You know, we hear a lot of similar sentiment from places like community, you know, the people who do sometimes much less visible work, but just as diligent, but, you know, might be at the end of the, the kind of hospital phase for a patient. And so it's not front of mind, like what happens when they're in ICU or ED, for example. Um, because these are the challenges that we're going to have and confront as we go forward. And, you know, I totally agree, bringing people along, and I like your um, expression of sort of wrapping our arms around them. I think that's lovely. 
uh, because we're going to have to, like, you know, we're not going to be handed um, anything, frankly, and it's going to be great to have a new government and the fight will be different. We talk a bit about maybe it won't be fighting. It might be a bit more like dancing. Um, but the reality is they're not going to just, you know, hand over every single thing that we want. We are going to have to demonstrate that this reform is needed um, and really keep the pressure up in terms of the time frame that we need for it to be delivered and the scale, you know, the deterioration across the health system in places like maternity services, um, you know, has been absolutely catastrophic. And so reforming uh, is going to be really key. And uh, I really appreciate all of the sentiment that you shared there. Shay, can I jump in though? I'd really love to reiterate something that Alicia just said then, because I think it's a really key thing to bring up. I mean, I know our midwifery area is really struggling as well. And we've only recently found out of issues that have been going on for ages. But one of the biggest things that she just said, which is so key, is empowering those people to speak up. And it's like you said, putting your arm around them, but empowering them to understand that their voice does matter and their voice can make a change rather than accepting the whole there's no point in some, saying something nothing will change mm -hmm. if we empower them to speak up and to give them that knowledge that your voice will matter whether it's to the union to start something or whether it's to the management to start something to get them to realize that their voice actually has weight and can make the change that can be a huge thing that can work with bringing some of these areas that have been left behind mm -hmm. and feel forgotten to come forward more as well because some of them just maybe feel that their voice won't change a thing but actually it will mm, for sure i just wanted to highlight that that's a huge thing that was brought up like it's so important to make sure that they all know that they're important too yeah definitely look and i think that's a really easy thing for me to say too like to empower people but i, I don't know how to do it like i'm a branch secretary i'm a delegate i, I have no answers i don't know how to get people to engage um I, I literally have nothing, no ideas left. Um, it's going to be a battle. Um, and I think it's an area where our branch officials and our delegates really need a lot of support in the coming months and years um, to really try and re-engage our members. Um, yeah. Look, I think that's right. I don't think there's any easy answers here, right? But, you know, the thing that makes me sort of start to think is do you need really targeted strategies things that focus on connecting with uh, a whole range of specialties that haven't been part of this most recent commitment? And do we need to ask those other branches to say, you know, can you pair up or can you show some of the experiences that you've had? What, what steps did you take? Or can you step back as well so that we can give space to those other specialties? So I think it's going to be a really interesting space for our union and for our branches over the um, coming years, in a, you know, for us to think about how we give um, uh, space for the advocacy that needs to happen for all of those other areas as well. So, yeah, lots to think about. No easy solutions in any of it, to be honest. And I think that's the nature of health, right? The complexity that you're dealing with day to day flows through into the reform that's needed and into our union work. So, um, but the joy of working in a union is we get to do all of that together and working on it together, I think, is actually how we find our way through it. And so uh, I feel like that's probably a good space to sort of, um, you know, I'm really grateful for all of you uh, coming on and chatting today. Um, again, no easy solution. Campaigns, I think, 
are all wrapped up in headlines and slogans and you win or you lose. And it's just very rarely as simple as that. And so really talking through some of the nuance is great because I think it will help our members to understand um, some of what needs to be done in order to really uh, get equity for everyone. I guess one thing that's really striking me as well um, is um, there seems to be a lot of commitment from a lot of sort of talk from the new state government about reducing surgical waiting times um, across New South Wales, which is really important for, for people in New South Wales to be able to get the surgeries that they need when they're in pain or they're sick. Um, but, you know, really sort of nutting down to the fact that without a commitment across the board, it's just not possible. You can't compartmentalise these things. You know, a commitment to ratios eventually in our in our surgical wards means nothing if we don't have ACORN standards in our in our theatres like I, I think we really need to impress upon this new government that we can't just compartmentalize um, and commit to some areas and not others and expect to see real change in our health system. Look I completely agree so much of our discussions um, prior to the election and beyond the election has been about the interconnectedness of our health system. And I think that the political world don't understand it, and nor should they, I suppose. Um, but trying to help the new health minister and the new government really understand that, you know, if you do something in an emergency department, it's going to have a flow on into the wards. If you do something in a theatre, it's going to have a flow on into the wards. What happens to ambulatory care? What happens to community? You know, you can't just move one piece of the puzzle without understanding that domino effect across the entire health system. Uh, so I think all of what you've said is absolutely right. Uh, we're really uh, keen to try and get um, some, um, you know, members of ours involved in the surgical task force, the one that will work through a lot of these issues for exactly that reason that you're talking about because we would love nothing more than to see that surgical wait list reduced as well. Um, but in a climate where our workforce is already on its knees, the prospect of increasing the pressure on that workforce just uh, is, is, you know, a pretty big concern and so something that needs to be thought through very carefully. Another thing I think needs to be acknowledged is whilst it's an area, all, all areas that haven't been addressed are big and important and need to be done, but another area has it has been forgotten and shouldn't be is mental health yeah and i think um for the the government's uh point of view they need to realize that as you said what changes in ed will affect the hospital yeah but mental health and emergency departments go hand in hand and so often our emergency department along with many others are going to be um, bed blocked and locked up because we have so many acutely unwell mental health patients who need to be placed and we can't place them anywhere because all the other areas are so full mm. and they, they have been also forgotten in this, in this claim mm. um, and these promises along with so many other areas. And I'm not ignoring any of them, but mental health is a big one that needs to be addressed. And it's a huge issue in our state where many people are being lost in the system, forgotten about, and they're not getting the support that they need. So that's something that hopefully will be in the argument that gets addressed soon. Mm. Um, and they can also, you know, they're very vocal people, um, our, our mental health union members, and hopefully they can continue that fight and we can get the government to start sort of standing up and listening to what needs to change.
Okay, well, thank you all. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. We probably didn't go as deep as maybe we'd planned in our notes either, but I think we had some pretty good conversation. And I think that just, you know, having all of us talking is probably um, a bit hard to go deep in an hour. Uh, but, you know, I'm really grateful and I hope that we covered off and did justice to your perspective and um, the experience that you and your members are having um, so I'd be keen to hear your feedback if you think there's anything that we need to kind of dig into because we could consider it for future episodes potentially too. Look, I think there's certainly scope to have more episodes around that, Shay, and, um, and hear more stories from our members. So we would definitely welcome that. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much and uh, look after yourselves and no doubt you'll be hearing from us lots in the uh, coming weeks. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen your emails, but log of claims have gone out and um, we will serve, if it you know, gets voted up by the members, it will get served on the ministry um, towards the end of May, I think the timing, and that will kick off the negotiations basically. So it'd be really interesting to start to see how the negotiations themselves play out um, because, you know, in previous years, we would go to the ministry but basically they'd just say no to every single thing that we would put forward. Um, and it feels already like this is going to be somewhat different. You know, we met with Ryan Park on Tuesday uh, and he was talking through some of the process and planning around the implementation of ratios um, and, you know, how he's basically telling the Ministry of Health what he wants out of them. So it'll be interesting to see um, and we'll obviously keep members updated through Committee of Delegates and stuff like that. But, yeah, I feel cautiously optimistic to take your words, Alicia. I think they're, they're exactly the right um, frame of mind. I hope they're the right words. I'm, I'm really hoping because um, we can't we can't take this for much longer. Yeah, I, I, I think most midwives and nurses across New South Wales would agree. Yeah. Um, you know, we were very hopeful in at the last state election, this state election, more cautiously optimistic, but um, they really need to back us. Um, we are the heart of the health system. So he's hoping. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, thank you all. Take care. Have a lovely day. And uh, again, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back after a quick word about the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's continuing professional education program. Did you know the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association has a new online CPD portal? With over 200 free online CPD courses across a wide range of nursing and midwifery topics, plus the ability to track your learning, it's definitely worth checking out. If you're a New South Wales NMA member, just log in to the member portal, Member Central, to access this program. And if you're not yet a member, make sure you join today. That's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jess, Alicia and Sam, and I look forward to sharing more stories with you from the world of nursing and midwifery. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, and if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review to help others find the show. If you've got a story you'd like to share with us, please get in touch by emailing us at the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au.